Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, I do have a legitimate question to start us off. What exactly is a smock? Okay, so there's a smock, uh-huh. and then there's smocking. These smocking. are two different things. So a okay. smock is what your mom used to put on you before you did finger painting. It right. would go okay. on from like the front with armholes. Yeah, like an apron, but okay. that covered coat. your full front. Okay, that's a smock. That's like an a art smock. smock. Yeah. And can you have a gun that smocks? Well, then smocking is like the fabric, like the way that you you sew fabric the together. Fabric. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Or smocking is a way an idiot who doesn't know how to spell writes smoking gun. Now I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I think we're talking about a gun made of fabric, and mm-hmm. how Robert Mueller has not found one of those yet. I actually think we're talking <laughs> about the president finger painting and needing smocking to do his artwork. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's definitely no smocking gun here. But if there was a smocking gun, Robert Mueller has it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the smocking gun edition. I am Shane Harris of the Washington Post. I have to admit when I saw heard smocking gun the first time, by the way, he said it twice in the tweet. It wasn't just once, it was twice that he misspelled it. Are and you he was mocking quoting, his smocking. Mocking the smock I am. <clears throat> I really am. And it was he was quoting from like a Fox News article or something. So I'm like, I know you don't cut and paste. I don't think he knows how to do that. So did he just, just spell it twice? And when I thought of smocking, I thought of like like one of those like like hot glue guns or like a staple gun or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I'm just like picturing him just like in like a craft smocking. studio, yeah. just like, you know, it. like tacking things down. It's like a craft project. Yeah. It's really, it's preschool. It's perfect for the toddler in chief. <laughs> smocking gun. <laughs> I am just so utterly delighted by the simplest inane things. It's what keeps me going. It's what keeps me alive. Uh, we're here in the jungle studio with Susan Hennessy and Tamara Kaufman. With us. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Shane. Ben is off in, where is he off? Israel. He is in Israel, yeah. Doing things, Israel things, flying in helicopters. Uh, I hope only one. Only at one. At a time. At a time. I think he's brokering peace with Jared. Yeah. Jared has some big ideas about Middle East peace, you guys. We're going to talk about that this week. There's a lot to get to. On the podcast this week, there have been big moves in the Russian investigation. We'll try and put some of the pieces together. U.S. tensions with China escalate following the arrest of a senior Chinese telecom executive, and the Saudi crown prince has duped the White House advisor, Jared Kushner, news new reporting argues. Uh, let's start with Russia, and what I'm going to try and do my best here in a lightning round to recap on the things that have happened since last Friday, and then we're going to try and talk about what all of this means. So Michael Cohen, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, uh, was sentenced today to three years in prison, right, following his guilty plea stemming from tax evasion charges, fraud, uh, things having to do with his taxi medallions, and also most tantalizingly this issue of a campaign finance violation, which he also says- Also lying to Congress. Also lying to Congress about said campaign finance violation, uh, which he said he was directed to- No, lying to Congress about the ties- About the Moscow oh, God, tower about deal. how long the Moscow tower deal went up. Keep your crimes straight, Okay, listen, Shane. lots of crimes, lots of So lying. many crimes. So many crimes for which he feels super bad and is going to go to jail for three years. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, also, uh, Michael Flynn's attorneys last night, Tuesday night, uh, filed a memorandum for the judge arguing that he shouldn't serve prison time, which the special counsel agrees, uh, stemming from his uh, uh, pleading guilty to lying to the special counsel about his contacts with Russia. There was an interesting little aside in that filing where Flynn essentially said, yeah, I left to lie to the FBI agents when they came to the White House, but like, I didn't know that I could get prosecuted for lying. I wasn't clear this was like, a, you're lying to his interview and this you get in trouble. This cop seemed thing. so cool, man. They seemed so cool. I thought we were just hanging out. 
you know, we're just talking. We'll talk about that, too, in a minute. Uh, Paul Manafort, uh, the government last week filed a memo to the judge laying out all the reasons why they think that he violated his plea agreement and his cooperation agreement. Some tantalizing bits in there, including that he uh, allegedly has lied about contacts that he has had with the administration fairly recently. No collusion. No collusion. No angling for a pardon here. I'm just smocking. Um, (laughs) I'm smirking. (laughs) Sure are. Uh, There's also very tantalizing references to uh, someone named Konstantin Kalimnik, who the special counsel clearly thinks is a Russian asset, is also a longtime aide to Paul Manafort. Actually, he was so close with Manafort, uh, he was once referred to as his Russian brain, Konstantin Kalimnik, uh, because Manafort does not speak Russian and Kalimnik had lots of connections in Russia that he helped Manafort with. Uh, and then tomorrow, Thursday, we're expecting Maria Butina, you like that? I'm continuing with my That's good. pronunciation, to plead guilty to charges of acting as an unregistered agent of Russia and the United States. And it's possible that she's also reportedly going to uh, cooperate with investigators. The big question there is, could she have information about connections, possibly financial connections between uh, the NRA and Russia? She was a gun rights activist who was making inroads into conservative policy circles and the NRA. So all of that has happened. What the what? Um, One of the first things that occurs to me, and maybe Susan, you want to start us off on this, is these are all people who were clearly in the orbit, with the exception of Butina, of President Trump. I mean, there is the obvious sort of political ramifications of this, that, you know, your former national security advisor is now pleaded guilty. Your former fixer is going to prison for three years. Uh, The guy who ran your campaign is in a lot of hot water and has been accused of lying to investigators. Politically, there's, you know, none of this looks great for the president, obviously. But can we maybe talk about some of the, you know, where we think this actually shows the Mueller investigation is going uh, and kind of like what legal paths it's pursuing? Because obviously Mueller is pursuing violations of the law. This is not a political investigation. There are political ramifications of it. But what does this add up to from the legal standpoint, do we think, right now? And, and the direction of the investigation? So I think we're moving closer to the center, um, the center being the president himself. So as we've sort of talked about actual indictments and prosecutions in the Russia investigation, it's been lots of people connected to Trump for lots of activity that may or may not be connected to Trump. And so there's been sort of this theory of does Trump just happen to attract lots of criminals who've committed all kinds of other crimes, be it sort of tax evasion in Cohen's case or, uh, you know, FARA violations and money laundering and all sorts of other things in, in Manafort's case? I think we're reaching a stage of the investigation in which we really are focused on issues that relate directly to the president's conduct. So in the Cohen sentencing, obviously, the most interesting thing is uh, is this campaign finance violation. You know, it, look, it is significant, and this observation has been made, but uh, you know, it's been wor- it's worth making here as well. It's significant that this is the Southern District of New York making the accusation itself for the first time that the president directed Michael Cohen to make these illegal payments. Um, You know, Cohen stood up and said this in court. That was a significant moment, but it was just Michael Cohen speaking. Prosecutors could not have included this in their filing unless they believed it was true. I think that's a pretty strong indication that there is probably other corroborating evidence here. And so I, I think we should just take a minute to pause and say, you know, federal prosecutors have essentially accuse the president of maybe committing a crime. Um, I actually think that we are seeing sort of all of the elements but one, you know, this idea that um, Trump is sort of trying to say, well, it was a private transaction, you know, so it wasn't intended to influence the campaign, you know, with this new AMI non-prosecution agreement that we're seeing today. AMI is the company that owns the Inquirer. Right, the National Inquirer. That bought Stormy Daniels' story or Karen McDougal's story. Karen McDougal's story. And they today have said that the principal purpose was to influence the campaign. Michael Cohen has said that his principal purpose in making these uh, payments was to influence the campaign. You know, the only piece that is missing for us to sort of say the president of the United States appears to have committed a felony is that it was a knowing and willful violation. So you actually have to know it was a crime in order to commit this particular crime. Um, Notably, Donald Trump tweeted about John Edwards having committed this crime uh, several years ago. There's always a tweet for everything, um, which some would say would go to sort of knowledge of of knowing this was a crime. You know, again, on the Manafort filing, something that both the Manafort and the Cohen filing share is 
that Mueller is focused and prosecutors are focused on communications with the White House extending into this year. So not just that those communications happened, which is itself significant, but also that prosecutors are focused on this and some of the information that is, uh, some of the, the cooperation that has been helpful is related to these contacts. So once again, we're getting right into the White House. And then with Flynn himself, you know, I know that what he actually sort of uh, pleaded guilty to was this false statement, but it's his time while he's actually the sitting national security advisor. And of course, the big question is who directed him, one, to have the substantive communication with Sergei Kislyak, and who, two, who authorized him to lie, or was he genuinely freelancing? So and I who think, else may have lied about it? Exactly. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing here is all roads lead to Trump. And if you look at sort of that list of possible theories of the case, a lot of the innocent end of the spectrum is kind of out the window here. And this notion that Mueller's looking at lots of people, but Trump is kind of this peripheral figure, you know, maybe his name unifies these people, but he doesn't, his personal conduct isn't an issue. I don't see how you can make a a good argument for that. I think we really are at like a pretty nefarious uh, end of the spectrum in terms of what are the plausible explanations at this point. And Tammy, doesn't that also... Give us your thoughts, too. But also, it strikes me that, to Susan's point, all roads leading back to Trump, this is the guy who all the sort of portraits of him as a manager are like the micromanager guy, the small company. He's aware of everything that's going on. I mean, it seems to fit at least with the model of how we understand he's worked in his private business, maybe not so much in the White House anymore, but as a manager where, like, of course he was aware these things would be happening. He was aware of lots of things that were happening in his business. He seems to be someone who was very involved in all of the key decisions, not only around the business, but around the campaign. And to the extent that he personally had any distance, it was just because he was busy and who was in the hot seat in his place, his son. So, you know, I think even if we're not talking about Donald Trump's personal awareness or personal direction, we are talking more and more about his family, which is an area that he and his lawyers flagged very early as some kind of red line that they saw in the Mueller investigation, which, you know, we don't yet know because Mueller has not yet taken actions that we can see with respect to Don Jr. But the more facts come out, the more culpability it seems like he may be open to as well. I guess, you know, two things strike me about this the set of facts that we've gained over the last week through all these filings. One is how many different roads lead into the White House, into the Trump family, and and to the president himself. And the president is talking a lot more about this now. He's not holding back in the way that he had been over the previous six or nine months, relatively speaking. That was the president holding back. (laughs) Right. It's all relative. But now he seems to have really just have a reaction to every single news break related to the Mueller investigation. He has a reaction to every statement by Michael Cohen <laughs> related to these pleadings. And, you know, we we have yet to see what he's going to have to say today. But it's been a rare day over the last week that hasn't started out with some Trump tweets on this. And the more he says, the more I think you're right, Susan, that it raises questions about what he knew and what he didn't know, because he can't keep pleading ignorance the more he talks about this stuff. His biggest defense on the campaign finance stuff seems to be, well, everybody does it, which, you know, might be a defense at some level, but it's not a defense that helps him with an American public that's already upset about corruption in politics. And one element of his campaign for the presidency was that he was going to drain the swamp. If his defense to campaign finance allegations is well, I'm as swampy as everybody else. That's a political loser of a justification. And that's before you even get to Russia. The other thing, though, and I think the Butina news really brings this to light, is how many different channels the Russians were engaged in, in getting into American politics and into our presidential election. And over what a long period of time this continued. So, you know, we started getting the facts of this immediately in the wake of the 2016 election. But the more we learn, I mean, Butna's exercise was planned, 
um, you know, cons- in close consultation with uh, Alexander Torshin, um, a senior figure in the Russian government, funded uh, by the government, designed to penetrate American NGOs that were connected to the conservative movement in order to gain influence over presidential candidates. It's all there. It's all explicit over two years. And and not only was she doing this, but she managed to get this American conservative operative involved in basically acting as an unacknowledged foreign agent deep, deep into this stuff. So I, I think that Trump aside, if we can just momentarily put his role in this aside, there is a lot we have to take away from this in terms of the extent of Russian penetration of our political system and how we want to think about that going forward. And I think I think that's right. And one of the things I just was struck by in the broad kind of putting it all together is that we've talked about this in the podcast before, that the way to look at the Russian interference is not so much about what Trump was trying to do with Russia, but about what Russia was trying to do to us and the extent to which you know Trump was a key component of that strategy of interfering. That's obviously where Mueller is looking. But what this also shows is that the Russian interference campaign was a multi-pronged, multiple lines of effort trying to insinuate themselves into the American culture, the American political conversation, American political organizations, the Trump campaign. And we have a clear preference, by the way, for conservative and right of center. Absolutely. You don't see a comparable example of this on the left. And, you know, and we learned from the, uh, I guess it was the Michael Cohen, uh, one of the Michael Cohen documents that this effort began possibly as early as November 2015, uh, when a Russian representative or someone holding mouth to be self to be a Russian representative called up uh, Michael Cohen and said they were looking for uh, uh, cooperation that would result in synergies between uh, political and business synergies. I mean, that's the word everybody should have used instead of collusion. This it's is like synergy. a big mistake. We should have talked about achieving political synergy <laughs> instead of colluding. It would have saved us so much time. Right, exactly. Synergy is not a crime. <laughs> there was no synergy, absolutely none. Um, and, you know, and Michael Cohen rebuffed this because he already had a Russian hookup that was trying to help him and the Trump organization do business in Russia. So he's like, yeah, I don't need another one. Like, another, he's like, I got so many Russians, I can just slot this one I already off. have a handler. I'm not in the market for another <laughs> like, one. Call I'm me taking, the Russian gentlemen. goes away. But I mean, it really does what we're seeing now, what Mueller has clearly uncovered is like, is the Russian government acting on multiple fronts and trying to, to, to get into the system and particularly trying to get into the Trump campaign? And what there is not is any evidence at any point, that the, and you've made this point before, Susan, too, in recent days, that the Trump campaign ever said no. Yeah, but I, I actually would go a step further at this point. There's affirmative evidence of them having said yes. And so I actually think what we're careening towards is is pretty scary. And that's that when Mueller delivers his report, based on what we already know, I think that there is going to be an extremely strong case for impeachment. And I think the new revelations in the Cohen filing were sort of the nail in the coffin on there being, uh, you know, a, a genuine case for impeachment because now we actually have a statutory violation. So, no, you don't necessarily, the president doesn't necessarily have to have committed a crime uh, to be impeached, but uh, Congress has never sort of seriously considered impeachment without that sort of criminal element. Um, now we have that in addition to all kinds of other really, really troubling conduct, you know, that go to sort of the core of how he got elected, right? Campaign finance violations, hiding information that would have potentially been dispositive in a very, very close election. This Trump Tower Moscow deal lies to the public since he's become president. You know, sort of the, the full, everything we've seen the explanation, the, the reality is always worse, right? So so each time we dig, it's not that, oh, well, maybe there's an innocent explanation. It's never the innocent explanation. And so I think that the scary moment we might wind up with is Robert Mueller finishes his report. He hands it over to Congress. It shows something incredibly disturbing, something that really is the the right thing for the country. And, and I say this, you know, believing that, that impeachment should be the absolute last option and, and is a really damaging thing for the country. But, but, you know, a report that actually indicates it is necessary in this moment. And that's going to land in a context in which 
there isn't the matching political will. And then what do you do, right? So even sort of the, you know, responsible members of Congress and and even some of the Democrats, right? I think Nancy Pelosi is sort of indicating that she believes impeachment has to be bipartisan, which I, I think is reasonable, right? So sort of impeachment without removal from office in a case like this just isn't going to cut it. And so, right, what do we do if it really is as bad as it all looks? And yet, we don't have that sort of, you know, uh, Nixon kind of backlash in which the moment finally comes and it all comes crashing down. And you have a president who's not inclined to step down. That's why I think I, I don't know if the term is constitutional crisis, but a, a crisis to the Republican in like a really real sense. So to pick up, I think, from that point, one thing I've been weighing over the last few days is how have the politics of this shifted and how might they shift as more and more of these facts become clear? Because it seems to me that in a lot of the conversation, including conversation we've had on the podcast about the Mueller investigation, we've been focused on how conclusive is Mueller going to be on evidence about Donald Trump and his potential criminal behavior. And The more I think about it, the more I think that what's going to matter for Republicans and what's going to matter for the politics of what results is maybe not certainly not only that, but maybe not even mostly that, because if Robert Mueller can sketch or draw in full form a compelling picture of a really aggressive, very broad, very multifaceted Russian attempt to shape our politics. That's a national security threat that I think Republicans have a hard time turning away from, even if it's their own president that is implicated in that. And so I think that in some ways, the extent of Mueller's ability to paint a picture of the Russian aggression is going to be more politically important than his ability to paint a picture of Trump's criminality. It seems like we've even seen maybe a a hint of that kind of that theory being tested, I think, with the Khashoggi incident, which is where you've got, you know, this flood of intelligence coming and the president, you know, insists on not, you know, recognizing as real. Uh, Lots of senators saying, you know, it's just, it's obvious to everyone what happened here, and you're actually making deleterious decisions about our foreign policy by hitching our wagon to Mohammed bin Salman. And why won't you listen to the CIA? And essentially, this is intolerable. And you see a lot of pushback against him for that. It makes me wonder if they. And that's not even something that directly affects the national security of the United precisely, States. Precisely, precisely. But it's like sort of like it's in that in like in microcosm. It's like here's the president having to make decisions about foreign policy with the benefit of intelligence. Um, I guess what I'm saying is it shows that, and there there are moments when even his supporters can stand up and essentially say to him like, "Dude, we all see what's going on here, and we see you denying what's going on here, and that's a problem." They have not done that with Russia, but I mean, to your point. If Mueller can come out and persuasively say, which I think he did in that indictment of 13 Russian hackers, give us some pretty amazing detail, look, this was collectively an assault on our democracy and the president of the United States enabled it or aided and abetted it. Or participated in it. Or participated in it. I mean, that's going to be very, very difficult to ignore. I think for for Mueller, and I mean, I, I don't think he's thinking about this in terms of optics and how it lands. But for that, to, to make the impression with the public, though, he's going to have to deliver some kind of a product that ties it all up together. It can't just be a series of these kinds of filings and findings where even those of us like us who are constantly following this kind of get lost and have to get together on podcasts just to unpack it. It's going to have to be something in the way of a kind of a report that says, my fellow Americans, this is what this all means. We need a Robert Mueller emergency podcast. Just that's the proper way. If he wants to come on here and tell the whole story, we'll go long, baby. Yeah, we'll We'll roll it it out for you, baby. We'll do it. (laughs) All right. There will be much more to uh, to get to on this question. We didn't even answer all the questions, but um, let's pivot to uh, something. um, Let's pivot to a much simpler topic. China. Sure. Oh, simpler times. 
when trade wars are all we have to worry about. Um, we've talked about the the escalating trade war, I think even as recently as last week with China on the podcast. Uh, we're escalating yet again with some recent developments. One is that the, the administration has actually signaled that it's going to take a much tougher line on Chinese espionage uh, and illegal transfers of technology. We're going to see some indictments related to that, calling out China on more aggressive hacking. Also, um, the chief financial officer for Huawei, um, Huawei is the huge Chinese telecom and technology company. Uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, I may not be pronouncing her name correctly, uh, but she has been detained and is out on bail in Canada pursuant to a request for extradition to the United States, which is seeking to charge her uh, on alleged violations of sanctions against Iran, essentially in this deal where uh, they're accusing her essentially of taking part in a, in a fraud to make it seem like a company that was involved in violating sanctions was not actually connected to Huawei when it actually was. So she is now in custody in Canada or set on bail awaiting uh, extradition here. The Chinese have also uh, taken uh, into custody a former Canadian diplomat who is now working in China. And one thing I want to get you both to respond to is, are we now at a point where these two sides, the United States and China, are actually taking hostages in a trade war? Is that what this looks like? No, although uh, the president has not helped by sort of making comments that she might be released in as part of a trade deal, right? He really has created that impression. And of course, the Chinese are seizing on that. By every indication, this arrest is pursuant to a long-standing and legitimate law enforcement operation. Huawei isn't just suspected of, uh, of Iranian sanctions violations, but sanctions with Cuba and Sudan and Syria and, and all kinds of places. This is something the United States government has been concerned concerned about for a very long time. Uh, this is It's significant that this arrest was executed by the Canadians uh, pursuant to a request by the United States. That has a very specific process by which the United States has to provide lots of information to Canadian authorities for them to act on our behalf. So this really does appear like it's a legitimate arrest pursuant to you know a, a real investigation into crimes. Then what you have, of course, the Chinese respond by saying, well, this is just all, you know, it's all political targeting. Then you have the president responding by saying, essentially, yeah, maybe it is, or, or at least I'm going to leverage it politically. Uh, that's a, a terrible idea because the last situation we want to be in is having people arrested as part of sort of politics, right? It's contrary to the rule of law. It's dangerous for Americans and, and our allies traveling abroad in China. It's just not a road we want to go down. And that's why I think Trump insinuating this is so incredibly dangerous. Uh, you know, and, and, I, and I do think that we don't know why this Canadian diplomat has been taken into custody, but China sort of raising the stakes and taking us further down this path, you know, I, I really do think we're headed for something uh, pretty dangerous and pretty scary. We don't have a president who's sort of able to be responsible, be the adult, help de-escalate. He actually seems to to want to fuel sort of the, the flames here. I also think this is one of those cases where it's very evident that the thorough ignorance of international affairs and what governments do is on display and causing real damage to American interests and to the interests of the American people. Because as with the Khashoggi killing, where, you know, what was outrageous about it is not just that a man was lured into somewhere and murdered and cut into little pieces. What was outrageous about it was the abuse of diplomatic facilities. What was outrageous about it was going after your critics on foreign soil, right? There are a lot of things that were outrageous about it that have broader implications for the interests of individual Americans who are traveling around the world doing business or engaged in diplomacy. And if you react to that badly, it endangers them, too. And that's what President Trump has done here with his suggestion that she might just be a pawn in a trade war is he's basically saying, oh, and by the way, all the Americans that are over in China right now doing business or doing other things are pawns too. Congratulations. Like, have a good time. And so did the Chinese arrest this former Canadian diplomat who's now working for an American NGO? You know, did they arrest him in retaliation? Did they arrest him because that's what autocratic governments do 
when they are faced with an important national abroad, they arrest someone from that country as a bargaining chip. Well, the Chinese do do that. The Iranians do that. Other autocratic governments do that. So they might have done it anyway, even if the president had not said this. But the fact that he said it encouraged them and other autocratic governments to do it more. And that's where his ignorance costs Americans very directly. And they should be furious about that. Do you think, Tammy, when the Chinese, who, who clearly do understand our system and understand that it's a system of laws and a rule of law, when they see the president talking about this Huawei executive as possibly being a bargaining chip or saying, sure, I'll intervene and turn her into one if she's not already, do you think the Chinese know that he's just ignorant of how these things work? Or do you think that they believe that we're actually becoming more like them? That's a fascinating question. I think they know that our laws constrain our leaders. I don't know how much they appreciate that those laws constrain even Donald Trump. I have no doubt that two years into his administration, the Chinese and most other uh, major governments who have interacted with the Trump administration as much as the Chinese have understand that he can't deliver on half the things he talks about. He's probably said things directly to them in face-to-face -face meetings that he couldn't deliver on because of existing laws and regulations and procedures and congressional powers and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't doubt that they're aware that he's constrained, but they they might not have a precise read on how much. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's some extent to which they probably genuinely believe that part of this is pretextual, and that's that the United States has long identified Huawei as a national security concern, not just because of sanctions violations, but one, because concerns that telecommunications <clears throat> equipment both used in the United States and globally around the world, uh, because of sort of the close ties to the Chinese government, it might facilitate Chinese surveillance worldwide. It's also because U.S. Tech, tech dominance has been a huge part of national security interests. And so uh, the commercial advantage also play, plays a piece here. And, and Huawei sort of being a, a true global competitor is also a problem. And so I, I do think that there is uh, probably a genuine belief in China that, well, how much of this is a really about sanctions and really about because we violated these laws? And how much is, of this is really about just trying to hold us down because you don't don't want us to compete because you want to use your tech dominance to do precisely the thing that you want to try to prevent us from doing. You know, I, I do think the backdrop is really, really complicated here. That's why it's so important to be crystal clear whenever you take these ty types of steps because you're operating against a backdrop in which there is some fuzziness, there is some question. And if we want to maintain credibility on the international stage of no, we're not doing this you know, for, for political reasons, we're doing this for legitimate rule of law reasons, and it doesn't give you a justification to do the same thing for political reasons abroad, but only for rule of law reasons, you know, whenever you have a president kind of mucking that up. I, I think it is, it's even more consequential because it already is sort of a, a really, really complex area. But aren't we, I mean, just to kind of like pull on this thread for a second. Yes, there's a rule of law component. I mean, there are credible allegations. And they've gone through the process that, that the Huawei executive violated sanctions. But there is a political component to this, right? I mean, we don't want the Chinese to steal our intellectual property because we don't want them to gain economic advantage, at least uh, through theft. Um, we are worried about the proliferation of Huawei. We are worried about developing countries in Africa and elsewhere taking Chinese money in the One Belt, One Road initiative. We are worried about you know Made in China 2025 and then becoming a tech sector. We are worried about them building a 5G network. I mean, it's like, not to say that like it's a, you take it down to the crass level of like, we're going to actually start taking hostages. But I mean, there is a political component to this, right? I mean, and that, and that in a sense, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, not to say that the president is articulating that or helping that by doing what he's doing. But on some level, right, this is about nations vying for dominance and us wanting to make sure that we're number one and China is not. Well, I think that's very much the Chinese narrative. Yes, that this is a power competition and all of these instruments of the state are instruments for the wielding of power and relative power matters. And yes, 
I, I think what's important, though, is that from a Chinese perspective, our sanctions legislation, the stuff that that she and Huawei are alleged to have violated, is an expression of the exertion of American power beyond our borders. It's it's legislation that asserts extraterritorial authority. <laughs> um, and they have a problem with that because they see that as uh, an overreaching beyond the bounds of state sovereignty. And the only reason that we can do that is because of our preponderance of global power. So yes, um, that is how they're going to view our enforcement of our sanctions legislation, regardless of whether they think that the United States has a broader concern about the growth of Chinese power. They view that as an, a violation of their own national sovereignty. And that's precisely why I think Susan's earlier point is so important that if the United States cannot be precise and narrow in the scope of its claims with respect to this law and the violations alleged, then it makes it much, much easier for them to claim that all laws, including international treaties to which they may be signatory, are merely instruments of power and don't have any claim on them. You know, they they say now that they've arrested this former Canadian diplomat who works for the International Crisis Group under their NGO law, which is a vague and arbitrary instrument whose bounds are undefined. And so no NGO operating in China knows whether they violated it or, or not. And this is the first time anyone's been arrested. And so it's throwing a chill on the entire NGO sector, which is, of course, exactly what the Chinese want. Autocratic governments use laws as tools of power. So this is rule by law. And we claim that we're doing rule of law. And in order to maintain the boundary between those things and demonstrate that that boundary is real, we have to be restrained and we have to be precise and we have to be empirical. And that's where President Trump is falling down. Yeah, I mean, Shane, to, to your point, look, these types of indictments are always inherently political. They they involve the attorney general personally. The State Department is all, is often involved in prosecution decisions and timing and all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, to say, no, 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 this is just ordinary, you know, sort of prosecutions. No, these things have huge foreign policy ramifications and, uh, you know, and, and they're treated with a sensitivity. You know, there's also a political decision in saying, look, we're not going to sit around and watch you eat our lunch any longer. We have been watching you know, our, our uh, industrial sector being uh, being targeted, our sanctions being violated. We've watched you break all these laws. And now we are going to prioritize uh, either prosecutions or we're no longer going to turn a blind eye, right? This is this is part of the Obama administration policy of name and shame and, and indictments and actually, uh, you know, saying we're, we're going to start becoming more aggressive in, in this space. Now, that's not the same thing as saying we're going to target people who haven't broken Broken the law, or we're going to target people for we're going to we're going to um, you know select our our defendants based on sort of maximum political pressure points, but saying no, this is a new this is a heightened area of interest. This is a heightened area of, of uh, prosecutorial interest, and also this is an area in which uh, where in, whereas in the past we might have been more restrained, more deferential, less likely to act, we're going to make the political decision to no longer place those sort of foreign policy, comedy, uh, you know, type analysis on top of it. But that's different than sort of hostage taking, uh, you know, and, and the kinds of scenario of autocratic rule that, that Tammy is describing. Yeah, and it seems like it's a much more minus the hostage taking piece of it, which means that we've established that this isn't about hostage taking. It's a much more rational uh, strategy with higher chances of success, it seems to me, than what the president has been doing on trade, which is to ratchet up the pressure on the Chinese and then come out publicly as after the G20 and say, oh, it looks like we got a deal. And then in 48 hours, people realized there was no clarity at all on what people had agreed to. And the markets went nuts. Uh, and that's just sort of, you know, chaotic. There's a real strategy, a tough-minded one, it sounds like, behind, you know, this prosecution and these other indictments that may be coming that is, is thought out as opposed to the kind of flailing wind in the chest thumping, which, you know, while it might bring the Chinese to the negotiating table, there are all these knock-on consequences in the market that surely the president didn't want. All right. Well, speaking of other things the president didn't want, Jared Kushner, no. <laughs> we don't know that. I don't know what he wants. Do you think he likes Jared? Do you think he likes Jared? 
Yes, I think he likes Jared. I think he probably likes Jared, too. I think Jared also has demonstrated a really good ability to suck up. That's true. And he sucked up to another person in the form, apparently, of Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> Can I just say, though, Clara Jeffrey on Twitter has now offered the greatest description of Jared Kushner to date, which is Victorian specter child Jared Kushner. <laughs> it's true. He really does look like one of the ghastly crumb tinies. Oh He's like an God. Edward Gorey drawing. Yes. He's amazing. Yes. <laughs> Jared done in with a what's with a what starts with a J. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look it up for you. <laughs> Uh, the New York Times had a really interesting report um, about the uh, the bromance, I guess we might call it, the the lure, the 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 uh, seduction of Jared Kushner um, by Mohammed bin Salman. It goes into yuck. <laughs> okay, maybe they didn't use the word seduction. That was just me. <laughs> wooing, I think, was the, the word. Wooing, they that used. was the word. It wasn't coming to mind. <laughs> It wasn't. It was right there. I couldn't get it. Wooing. It was romantic. Wooing sounds like something like in a. Like it sounds so very nineteen fifties. No, it sounds very Victorian. Wooing. <laughs> the courting of Jared Kushner. The courting of Jared Kushner. <laughs> oh my God. It's like an Edith Wharton novel. Exactly. Everyone exactly. trapped in their Victorian rules. <laughs> oh God. Um. Yeah, I don't even know where to be, where to go with this now. So the gist of the story is that uh, so at following the, it goes into we won't go into all the details about how how they met, uh, but what essentially when when Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman were put together, but um, by people in both government, I guess governments who thought they would get along really well, they've gone on to have this um, uh, relationship that gets carried on to some degree in the shadows, which I think we kind of knew about. You know, meetings and phone calls they've had that are not formally Texting documented, and what's texting and WhatsApping, uh, and those things that are going on, uh, kind of outside of the normal channels, which, you know, we've talked before about why this is uh, problematic. Um, But what's really interesting is the Times gets a hold of this PowerPoint presentation that essentially is the Saudis kind of laying out the case of how Jared Kushner is so naive and I think it's implied so arrogant and presumptuous in his approach to how he can fix the Middle East because he's figured it out. The Saudis realize that they have this pliable figure uh, in the center of the White House at the, at the highest uh, levels of power uh, and kind of dupe him. And, and MBS takes him on and essentially you know, makes this promise that I can be the key that unlocks things for you in the Middle East. You know, MBS, I've done some reporting on this too, tends to have a very kind of simplistic view you of power it's in the region. Two young men with grand vision to overpromise. Two young guys who overpromise, right? It's the world's worst New York Times vows column. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This is just getting worse and worse. <laughs> but, Tammy, talk about so, from a just from a pure foreign policy perspective, obviously, it's not unusual for two leaders to have a relationship and to have a relationship to form, uh, you know, and even some cases, you know, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, or for example, Margaret being, Thatcher and Ronald being Reagan, King Hussein. I right. mean, these are like, you know, like amazing relationships that forge lasting, you know, uh, sometimes temporary, but real and meaningful progress and peace. Um, you know, there's the obvious difference in that Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner are kind of like, you know, naifs, uh, uh, babes in the woods, if you will. But what do you learn from this relationship and the what appears to be pretty clear imbalance going on here um, that tells us about the way that the Trump administration is approaching foreign policy in the Middle East and, and what, you know, the potential downside and upside, if there are any to that. So I don't want to make inappropriate analogies, but I do think there are some parallels here to the relationship between Maria Butna and Paul Erickson. (laughs) Paul Erickson, conservative operative, but maybe a little naive, falls in love with this Russian influence operator who has her own plan, her own um, bosses in the Russian government and their money and and dupes him and brings him along for the ride, um, which isn't to say that he's not culpable for his own decisions. And by the way, neither is Jared. But I think that if you put this New York Times story together with the two pieces that Adam Entis published in The New Yorker in June and July of this year, if I remember right, about Israeli, Emirati, and Saudi efforts to influence the Trump campaign, mainly through Jared Kushner, 
and especially over the course of the presidential transition and the very beginning of the administration, what you have is a picture of three determined Middle Eastern governments who have all share uh, a real resentment and anger at President Obama for his regional policy, which they saw as a form of abandonment and betrayal of their interests. They see a huge opportunity with this incoming administration, both because of its naivete and because of its announced very superficial policy views. And they work together and separately to take maximum advantage. And so the MBS-Jared Kushner relationship is a consequence of that. These are governments engaged in a foreign policy exercise to win influence with an incoming president and those around him. And they succeed brilliantly, primarily for the reason, and one that we talked about at the time, for the reason that this transition was so undisciplined, so naive, and so thoughtless that it was willing to meet with these leaders unbriefed with no communication or coordination with the extant administration without getting basic briefing materials from the State Department, not keeping records. Kushner and MBS had dozens of phone calls apparently early in the administration without any record kept in the White House. And so even the national security officials were unaware of what was being discussed. And it sounds from the New York Times reporting as though that has largely continued. Yeah. So there are some conversations they're part of and some conversations they're not. So while, I, while he didn't have a security clearance, by the way. Right. And so basically what we've got here are people who are ignorant and careless. It's not just the ignorance. It's the carelessness about protecting and advancing the national interests of the United States and the security of the American people. And instead, so vulnerable to flattery that they can be sold these big visions that the Emiratis and the Saudis cannot deliver on. And we're seeing now that MBS cannot deliver. He cannot deliver the Palestinians to the negotiating table. He had to be corrected publicly by his own father, King Salman, uh, for going out over his skis on a Saudi position with respect to Jerusalem. And so ultimately, Kushner is going to get hung out to dry here. And the question that I'm asking myself is, will President Trump notice or care? Yeah, I mean, look, this this takes me back to like rants from early in the transition and, and early in this administration. And that's that ethics rules are national security rules. Nepotism rules are national security rules. And the Trump administration and Trump and his family, and let's keep in mind that those are largely the same things, acted as though these rules were a bunch were for a bunch of goody goody nerds, and they weren't going to divest from their businesses. They weren't going to engage in basic uh, transparency practices, and they weren't going to abide by nepotism rules, which meant that you were going to have individuals in the White House that were unqualified, unaccountable. We've actually, you know, despite Trump pledging throughout his campaign that his kids weren't going to be uh, weren't going to be in government. And so what we've seen with Kushner is the worst case scenario, exactly why these rules exist, which is his sort of secretary of everything model by which he kind of comes in and out of the things that he's he's interested in, drops stuff, uh, is responsible for things until something goes wrong. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's nowhere to be found. And I think what we're seeing now is the national security consequences of that, because it's not just Jared Kushner who's going to get hung out, hung out to dry. It's all of us. It's the national security position and, uh, and interests of the United States. And so by having Jared sort of naively go all in on this relationship, he hasn't just given up, you know, the administration's flexibility and leverage. He's given us given up our leverage, our sort of position of power vis-a-vis uh, -vis this relationship. And so, you know, I do think that it's it's such a remarkable crystallization of why you don't have the president's uneducated, untested, inexperienced and frankly arrogant son-in-law in the White House in the first place, let alone with one of the world's most sensitive and consequential portfolios. And speaking of leverage, Jared Kushner also is massively underwater 
for the most expensive piece of commercial real estate ever purchased in the city of New York. We ran a story earlier this year in the Post that U.S. intelligence had intercepted communications of people in foreign governments, including the UAE. As far as we know, Saudi wasn't one of them, but the UAE and Saudi are kind of joined at the hip through Mohammed bin Salman and MBZ and in the UAE, talking about how Jared Kushner was able to be influenced because A, he didn't know anything, and B, he needed money. And I mean, one of the emails I get constantly from readers is readers wanting to know what do the Saudis have over Jared Kushner? Is he making deals with them? Is he looking at them to be investors? And to be clear, we don't have any evidence of that. But a big reason we don't know is because so much of this is being done in secret, and he hasn't really divested from his company. So it's a completely fair question. And the Saudis must be asking it. Right. No divestment and no transparency. We actually haven't really confronted it before because usually we don't have people in the administration with ongoing business interests. I mean, it's it's the idea that anyone who was not related to the president of the United States would get away with this is it's inconceivable. I think also now that we are going to have, at least in the House of Representatives, political leadership that is interested in getting answers to these questions, we're going to see some pressure on the administration to create that transparency. Uh, I think we're probably going to see Jared hauled up there to answer some of these questions, um, hopefully under oath. And, you know, I, I think we can hope that at least having one House of Congress in the opposition party will create some degree of constraint on the nepotism and corruption that we've seen in this administration, not only amongst Trump and his family members, but in the cabinet more broadly. There just hasn't been a mechanism so far to check that uh, in our political system. And now we're going to have one. And, you know, going back to our conversation earlier about impeachment and the politics surrounding a Mueller report, I think that Setting again, setting aside the narrow question of impeaching the president of the United States, which is obviously not a narrow question, but relatively speaking, there is a broader, huge honking problem for the American people and the national interest in the degree of opacity and corruption and scandal in the current administration across a variety of people and offices. And, you know, divided government has its uses. Um, there was an extraordinarily contentious meeting at the White House yesterday between the president and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. But, you know, Americans often end up voting for divided government because they're uncomfortable with a lack of checks and a lack of accountability. And so, I know that there's anxiety about having a House of Representatives that does nothing but investigate the scandals of the administration. But this is a case where the scandals of the administration actually really need some investigating. All right. Let's investigate some object lessons. Susan, you want to go first? Um, I do. I have an object um, that I think actually Shane should read the object after oh. I explain it. Okay. So somebody took the lead paragraphs of a recent Washington Post story describing the current situation in the White House <laughs> and put it as the Star Wars opener, like with the letters coming across the page. And Shane Harris, I, Shane is going to read this because it, it needs a fresh reading. Okay. Um, of how perfectly this works as a setup. I have not seen this yet. Um, as a setup to uh, <clears throat> the world's scariest Star Wars film. Okay. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Episode 8. Individual one. <laughs> Facing the dawn of his third year in office and his bid for re-election, Trump is stepping into a political hailstorm. Democrats are preparing to seize control of the House in January with, subp <laughs> with subpoena power to investigate corruption. Global markets are reeling from his trade war. The United States is isolated from its traditional partners. This is a real article. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'd watch that movie. Hold on, there's more. Oh, God. 
The investigation by special counsel Robert S. Mueller III into Russian interference is intensifying, and court filings Friday in a separate federal case implicated Trump in a felony. Okay, but this really sounds like one of the later, you know, George Lucas reboot episodes. This is not The Empire Strikes Back. That is perfect. That is perfect. And then there's the Death Star. Who wrote that one, you know? That sounds I like Phil Rucker. I think Robert Costa. Okay, it sounds like Costa or Rucker, it. one or the other. That is great. I got to make sure people at the office saw that. That's fantastic. That is so good. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> Oh, boy. It's a well-written paper. Um, all right, I have an object. Before I get to my object, I want to share a reader. Um, we get comments and reader messages from, from time to time, but this one I thought was just so awesome. Somebody contacted me on Facebook, uh, a listener named Joss Whitaker. Uh, he says, for the last seven months or so, I was in an isolated village in the Aru Islands in Indonesia. Uh, he was doing archaeology research for his Ph.D., said, fortunately, I had downloaded a bunch of lawfare and rational security episodes. I enjoyed sitting in on those serious conversations with a sense of humor. And for better or worse, they reminded me that the U.S. in its bizarre current state still existed along <laughs> oh, with what Scotch. what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> sort of balances things out there, I guess. Anyway, I thought you'd like to know that the podcast have made it to one of the more remote, remote places on Earth. That's pretty cool. We are big in the Aru Islands, Indonesia, guys. So, Joss, thanks for the letter. Um, Okay, so my object lesson actually this week, though, comes to us uh, from another listener and friend of the podcast, Dustin Lewis, who's a senior researcher at Harvard Law School's program in international law and armed conflict, or as I like to call it, PLAC. (laughs) That's what the cool kids call it. HLS PLAC. (laughs) (laughs) And Dustin writes it uh, to say – uh, that he has uh, been doing research on reports from UN member states of measures undertaken purportedly in exercise of the right of self-defense, or Article 51. And he came across this portion from an official UN English translation of an Arabic 1991 communication from Egypt. So this document <clears throat> submitted from Egypt says, and its translation, I have the honor to transmit to you herewith the text of the statement made by Mr. Esmat Abdel Megwid, Megwid, Megid, Megid, <laughs> Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Foreign Affairs to the Arab and Foreign Affairs and Rational Security Committee of the Shura Council on 17th January 1991. Uh, doesn't That's the day after we launched the Iraq War. Oh. Just- just wow. to put you in mind. So, and that was under Article 51. Okay. So, but there should be a rational security. There should committee. be. I think Sadly, it's we think there is not. <laughs> Dustin goes on to say, alas, the rational security committee mentioned in that document seems to be a mistranslation. Elsewhere, another UN English translation of the same document, who knew the UN makes multiple competing translations of certain documents, you might ask, says National Security Committee, as does the French translation. No, no, no. They, they misunderstood because the Shura <laughs> Council is awesome enough. To have a rational security committee. For one brief shining moment. <laughs> one brief misunderstood moment. the pages of history. <laughs> there was a rational security committee. It's not just a weekly podcast, you guys. So thank you, Dustin, for helping us get in touch with our roots. <laughs> we really appreciate that. We're Egyptian. We're Egyptian now, you guys. We just got our ancestry DNA. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website. Ben's not here, so I can't give him crap about it. Although, it is legitimately on the website now. It really is. It really is. He'll be listening, so He'll you can give listening. him crap now, and then he could hear it later. No, it's really on the website, Ben, after like a really long time of like floundering out and... Yeah, thanks, Ben. Internet, you could direct interspace. it at Tammy because she's the same person. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at R A T. That was a joke. <laughs> it's a it's a Twitter thing. Look Sarcasm. it up. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at R A T L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. Uh, it really helps us out. And send us messages uh, like our friend Joss in Indonesia. It's awesome to hear from you guys. Uh, the audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jared Kushner and his debut solo album, J is for Jared, done in by an orb. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Or crushed under an orb. That would be even better. <laughs> it's like rolling over the top. 
Can you see it? Yes. It's I perfect. T- I can totally see it. Joe needs to draw that. Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> and Sophia Yam playing the background music just... <laughs> 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 she floats in through a window. <laughs> <laughs> rolls him down the stairs. And, like, out into a pond. <laughs> in front of the manor. Oh, Let's God. spin this out into its own podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> On behalf of my great friends, Dwarak Offenwittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.